Action Fanatics, welcome to episode 50 of the Bulletproof Podcast. I'm your host, Chris the Brain. Joining me, Chad Cruz. And Chad, we wanted to do something special for number 50 because we're halfway to 100. That's right. We always say we want to do something special for our listeners, uh, for the people who've supported us. And uh, maybe sometimes we succeed, sometimes we don't. I don't know. Maybe you think that. But this episode, I think, this is the one where we give back to the people. We, we really do, because for the first time in the history of the podcast, we have our first international guest star, the one and the only Ty Singh, the author of Born to be Bad and Born to be Bad Part 2. Ty, welcome to the Bulletproof Podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, guys. I feel you've hyped me up too much because I think there were at least a good chunk of your listeners then who thought you might have got Bruce Willis. And are now disappointed that you've just got some random British <laughs> who they've never heard of. Yeah, if they've never heard of you, they really need to check out your awesome books. The, you're just basically honoring the villains of the action movie world. And uh, my first question for you is, you know, you seem like a nice guy. And I want to know how a nice guy like yourself ends up interviewing some of the most maniacal people in uh, cinematic history. Oh, it's a great question. And the short answer is I couldn't get the heroes of action cinema um, because they're all too well protected by their agents and their publicists. And uh, But the, the longer answer is I just feel that guys that play villains actively look like they're having more fun. You can look at people like Bruce Willis and you can see that about 5% of the time he's having fun. The rest of the time he looks miserable and like he doesn't want to be there. But actors who play bad guys your Michael Ironsides, your your Ronnie Coxes, your Vernon Wells, they look like they are absolutely delighted to be there, chewing on scenery, you know, throwing out one-liners like it's confetti. And I just kind of felt like they would be much better interviews than the good guys. And so that's why I uh, wrote my books. And I think we can all agree here that, you know, the villain is really what makes an action movie. If you don't have a good villain, then it doesn't matter who the hero is. The villain is a, is a key player. Exactly. Yeah. Whether it's a Bond film or a, I don't know, a diehard film, I feel like your film is only going to be as good as your bad guy. And, and luckily because of that, there have been some great bad guys throughout action cinema. Um, and, and that's why it just kind of the whole field, opened up such a wide range of actors to interview. So can you explain the process? I mean, cause I'm sure even like you said, even though you may not have had to go through the hoops, uh, jump through the hoops with the heroes, I'm sure it's still a monumental task putting a book like this together, books like these together. Uh, so can you explain the kind of the process of putting the, putting a uh, born to be bad together? Sure. Well, when I kind of first came up with the idea, I immediately sat down and made a short list of actors that I would like to interview. So, you know, it was Vernon Wells, it was Ronnie Cox, it was Robert Patrick. And then it was just a case of trying to find out how I could possibly get hold of them. And, you know, IMDb Pro obviously has agents and publicists listed, but I was kind of like, ah, uh, you know, they're going to ask me what my credentials are. And at that point, I hadn't 
done anything of note. So it would literally be like some random guy emailing an agent in Hollywood out of the blue going, hello, can I speak to your client, please? So I did what I could to kind of circumvent management. So I looked for personal websites. I looked for uh, celebrities that were stupid enough to have their direct messaging open on social media platforms. And uh, actually, the first actor I reached out to was Vernon Wells. It turned out I found his personal email address on a website. It turned out to still work. And he said yes. He just said, absolutely, this sounds like a great idea. And he was the first guy I interviewed. And then once he said yes, and that interview was in the bag, it opened up, you know, other actors. So Sven Ole Thorsen, who's been in like every Arnie film since Conan the Barbarian, said yes. And then once he said yes, that opens up other doors. And then once you've got a few names under your belt, then some agents are like, oh, this is actually a book that has some names attached. I am more willing to let my client talk to this random guy from the UK. So then uh, would you say doing the second part was easier than the first part since you kind of got uh, got your foot in the door with a lot of people? Absolutely, yeah. The um, With the first book, there were some actors that I was not able to get simply because, you know, they had no idea who I was. But since the first book, I've written and co-produced a documentary on 80s action films called In Search of the Last Action Heroes that is on Amazon Prime. And so some agents were kind of like, oh, he's he's not a complete you know, no hoper. And as such, I was able to get some bigger names that I couldn't get last time, like Robert Patrick, like Kim Coates, like Tony Todd, like William Fickner. And so absolutely, once you have that first book under your belt, um, people can see that you're for real. If they can see that it's on Amazon, that that opens a lot of doors. Right, right. You had action movie uh, street cred, so to speak, with everybody. Exactly, yeah. Uh, Chad Cruz, the... Uh... Special introduction on this book. I was impressed. Mr. Graham Yost. I know he's done a lot of things that you enjoy. I think he's done some uh, Band of Brothers in the Pacific. Oh, wow. Yeah. So uh, obviously a, a guy who um, he understands the, you know, the, the, the perfect combination of dialogue uh, and action. And then uh, he also wrote Speed, I believe, and yeah. uh, a couple other films from that genre, from that era. Hard Rain, I know you like that one too. Hard Broken Rain was Arrow. a fun with Morgan Freeman, yeah, of course. So how how exactly, tied did that collaboration come together? How did you kind of uh, get that ball rolling with him? So I actually interviewed Graham Yost when um, I went to LA to do a bunch of interviews for In Search of the Last Action Heroes. And I was in his office uh, on the Sony lot. And uh, I think Justified had finished a long time ago. Uh, the Americans had just wrapped up. And uh, we just kind of got talking and uh, he was very candid about how, you know, he's been almost emulating Stephen E. D'Souza for most of his career with films like Speed and Hard Rain. So I kind of put that nugget at the back of my head. But one thing that we did kind of bond over, um, like you said, Band of Brothers in the Pacific, and I think he's actually in the UK working on Masters of the Air at the moment, which is their next big uh, series that's going to Apple TV about the Mighty Eight. But we talked a lot about the HBO miniseries From the Earth to the Moon that he did before Band of Brothers with Tom Hanks, um, which is all about the Apollo program. And he wrote one of my favorite episodes in that called Spider, which is all about how the lunar module was designed. Um, So we were basically nerding out about space stuff as well as uh, Band of Brothers. And he just gave me his personal email because 
a friend of mine runs a, uh, a sci-fi science podcast called The Cosmic Shed. And we knew that a few years later we'd be doing like a, an anniversary recap on From the Earth to the Moon. And I just reached out to him then, asked him if I could interview about his experiences writing on that. And then I just brazenly said, would you like to write the intro to my new book? Um, Stephen E. D'Souza did the first one and he was like, absolutely. I follow where he goes. So yeah, that, that was how I got Graham Yost. <laughs> That's perfect. That is a perfect story. And uh, one of the things I, I was wondering, you've obviously talked to a lot of people at this point now, what is the most unbelievable tale you've heard? For me personally, reading the first book was Jack O'Halloran, who played Nan in uh, Superman and Superman 2, the, mm -hmm. big, the big Kryptonian villain, also was in Hero and the Terror. Um, he has ties his father was in the gambino crime family he was hanging out with the rat pack i mean that just blew my mind when i read that uh, have you had moments like that I, i'm assuming you did talking to these interesting characters yes yeah, so, i mean jack o'halloran yeah this is someone who his father was the head of the gambino crime family and you know he was like a, a bare knuckle boxer and yeah he he just hang out his life was essentially like goodfellas um, and yeah, he did not get on with Christopher Reeve, which he's very upfront about. But yeah, everyone had like these really unique stories that you just wouldn't expect. Um, one that kind of sticks out to me is Al Leon, who plays everyone's favorite Asian uh, henchman in everything from um, Big Trouble in Little China to Rapid Fire to Die Hard and Lethal Weapon. And he never really wanted to be a martial artist. He just kind of wanted to be in a band and ride motorcycles. And that was his dream. And then he just kind of ended up falling into, you know, stunt work via Craig Baxley working on stuff like the A-Team. And, um, I mean, that man has worked with everyone. And I think talking to him was quite moving because a few years ago he had a stroke and he's paralyzed down one side of his body. And you kind of wouldn't believe that a man that was, you know, that athletic, you know, finds it very difficult to like walk upstairs now. So he kind of talking to him was very moving and uh, full of pathos. And, you know, considering what we know Al Leong for doing and what he wanted to do and where he's ended up, it, it's, it's quite a roller coaster. But there's a great little documentary film out there called Henchman, the Al Leong story that if you're just a fan of his, I highly recommend you check out. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, let's get into you. You did uh, you interviewed 20 more people, mm -hmm. 20 more villains for Born to be Bad Part 2. Just want to kind of go through some of uh, some of our personal favorites here uh, from Bulletproof Action and the Bulletproof Podcast. And starting off, let's talk about I mean, Born to be Bad's a great name because some of these actors are basically born to be bad just by their looks. And specifically, I'm talking about Brian Thompson. Yes. who has that menacing look to him. Uh, I mean, he absolutely 100% was born to be bad. And uh, the stories you get from him about being on the set of Cobra, especially the, the about the big speech he has at the end of the movie, and Stallone didn't even bother to be on the set. He wanted to watch basketball in his trailer. That is insanity. Yeah, Brian Thompson is a man who's kind of worked with Stallone, Schwarzenegger, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and you kind of get the impression... He didn't like working with any of them. He's even made his own um, Expendables <laughs> parody called The Extendables, which is just about a aging 
action star who's basically just allowed to behave like a brat on set because there's no one there to tell him no. And it's everything from gratuitous drug use to getting handsy with the female extras. And when I kind of pushed him on if this was like based on anyone in particular, he kind of hinted that all of this behavior he has seen with his own eyes. And then when you just kind of look at some of the actors that he's worked with, you can make an educated guess of who might have done what. But he's very open about how Stallone, and this is peak Stallone, you know, when he's doing Cobra, it's, you know, late 80s, uh, post Rocky 3 and Rambo 2, where, you know, you could argue that he's at his most egotistical and he's calmed down a lot since then. But you can definitely imagine uh, Stallone not wanting to be there for other actors checking out and going to his trailer to watch the baseball or the basketball instead of just standing there for Brian Thompson's, uh, you know, climactic speech. So yeah, he's worked on a lot of things and he is not shy about his disdain for certain A-listers. Yeah. Read more in the book, folks. Chad, one of our favorites. Yeah. Po. Speaking of instilling fear in people, uh, we talked about Brian Thompson being just kind of genetically built for that. Uh, Tong Po is, is a character that we've talked about. I know I've written multiple articles about him over the years and uh, continues to just kind of amaze me how, how cool of a villain he was in the first kickboxer film. And then later on in the sequels, but uh, you got a chance to, to talk to the man behind the Tong Po and uh, it wasn't all that we kind of thought that it would be. No, Michelle Kesey, who now goes by Mohamed Kesey, um, obviously grew up with uh, Jean-Claude Van Damme in Belgium. And the two of them were childhood friends who did martial arts together. And they went to Hollywood together to kind of follow their dreams. And his story is a fascinating one. Um, he was able to clarify all the legends about Jean-Claude Van Damme and how he, uh, you know, broke into canon. And uh, it seems like uh, Mohammed was there the entire way, uh, basically as a as a hype man, and also there to make him look good. Um, and yeah, it's it's almost quite a tragic story because these two were childhood friends, and essentially, as Jean Claude Van Damme's star rose, he had less and less time for the people that helped him out there, and the two of them fell out, um, parted ways, especially as. Jean-Claude's uh, partying took over. Um, it, it's kind of, there's a happy ending. I believe the two of them have made up in recent years. Um, but yeah, Mohamed Kesey is another one who's like, oh, let me just tell you what really happened. And we'll just talk for half an hour about, <laughs> you know, how Jean-Claude Van Damme auditioned for Predator and uh, was claustrophobic wearing the the initial Predator design uh, outfit that they did and and how they kind of uh, talked their way into the cannon buildings and got meetings. And yeah, it, it, it's fascinating. It kind of gives you an insight into what, you know, mid-80s Hollywood was like. Um, but yeah, he, he, he's another one who was just filled with stories and you literally just ask him a question and then you're just sat there agog for 40 minutes while he just delivers you this epic and he's a man in a in a character. He's a man in a character who, um, while he seems absolutely perfect for the role of Tong Po, in the book it, it says that he wasn't 
exactly the first choice for the role. No, um, I'm trying to think who they originally wanted. I think it was the uh, actor who does the stick fighting with um, Stallone at the beginning of Rambo 3. Harold Diamond. Harold Diamond, yes, from a lot of the Andy Sidaris films. Um, Yeah, I think he was the initial um, favorite, but I think Mohammed's relationship with Jean-Claude and knowing what his specialities were in terms of fighting and what he could and couldn't do... um, got him the role and it was just all about making him look the part. And then we just kind of get into the awkward stage of making, you know, an Algerian Belgian man look like he's from Thailand, but you know, <laughs> that is what it is. and <laughs> You've got no excuses for it. And it's, it's probably something that can't be excused, but you know, there we go. Yeah, and he had to have his ass cheeks out. I wonder how he felt. Did he? Did you ask? I don't remember you asking him about that. <laughs> Why not? No, I think the only actor I've asked about having their ass cheeks out is William Sadler when it came to his nude Tai Chi scene in Die Hard 2. And the only thing he had to say about that is, that is a scene we left till the end of the shoot so I could work hard all the way through filming to get those buns in perfect shape for the big screen. Buns of steel indeed. I and I've been working my entire life to get my buns ready for for this for that shot, for my chance. Yeah, that that's Chad's dream. <laughs> yeah, Chad either wants to show off his ass or get thrown through a window, or maybe have his ass out while he's being thrown out of a window. I'm not sure which. Yeah, I feel like a a, a nice cinema uh, cinematic drone shot of me flying through the window, pantsless would be perfect. I mean, you're going to have to you know cover your your more delicate parts because the last thing you want to do is get them cut on glass <laughs> as you go flying out through a window. That is true. That's the safety is important. Safety first, safety first, Chad. All right. Now we have had Michael Worth on our program before, and he has told us tales of Marshall Teague. And I just have to ask you to tie is Marshall Teague, the manliest man you have ever spoke to in your life. Uh, he's one of them. He is one of them. Um, he's also the one of the friendliest and nicest actors. I mean, he is, yeah, so what, he's a, an undefeated U.S. Navy kickboxing champion. And then he was, he did undercover work for the police force, um, which you can only imagine he was doing that in the most nefarious shit. Um, you know, he wasn't going undercover in some, <laughs> you know, maple syrup smuggling company or anything. Um, so, yeah, he, he, he is up there. And then he all the roles... All the film roles he does, it's either like kickboxing, psychopaths, or he's there as like a Navy SEAL or an astronaut, or it's like uh, all the stuff he's done in like Star Trek where he's a Jem'Hadar warrior. And then, you know, every now and then he'll do one of those pure flicks films where the, uh, the American Civil League Association are trying to stop, you know, some small town from putting up a Christmas tree. And you're like, this is not what I expect Marshall Teague to be in, but... Everyone's got bills. And um, yeah, but he, he is he is adorable. And I would say, yes, he is one of the manliest men. All right. Another one that really interested me uh, due to my wrestling fandom was Tommy Tiny Lister, who will always be Zeus to me. Um, he did not seem to uh, have many great things to say about the Hulkster Hulk Hogan, but I feel like he picked up on some of Hogan's ability to maybe stretch the truth a bit when I saw that he said Vince McMahon wanted him to be the champion of the World Wrestling Federation. Uh, I don't know if I buy that. 
Well, I mean, that was quite the interview because um, Tommy Lister, to interview him, he's just a force of nature. He was just going off on tangents all the time. And as an interviewer, it was hard to keep him on track. But it's, I mean, the man, I think, died last year. And he, yeah, he, he was just, he was fascinating. He was like, I don't know whether he was a man that was semi-living in the past and nostalgia, but he kind of felt that he had a second wave coming. And I wasn't entirely sure that was the case. He was like, you know, because of the Friday films, they're so beloved in the R&B and hip hop community. He was like, oh, any day now they're going to make another Friday. And before you know, it, I'll be in like Aquaman 2 with Dolph Lundgren and, you know, my time will have come again. And you, it, on one hand, it was kind of like a little bit sad because you thought, you know, this wasn't the case. But on the other hand, you're like, this man has worked with everyone from, you know, doing mm-hmm. the Friday films to you know the dark knight and the fifth element and you know the universal soldier films and he's worked with you know everyone so it was a strange one and i'm not the world's biggest wrestling fan in fact i know very little about it i knew obviously that he was zeus and the no holds barred situation but you definitely got the impression from him that he was screwed over in that regard and hulk hogan was definitely behind it to some degree now i don't know whether that's true, all I know is that he definitely felt that was the case. But with wrestling, you're not entirely sure how much of it is, you know, all part of the show or, you know, 100% ego driven. Absolutely. Um, and there, there's another guy, though, we talked about with Brian Times, Born to be Bad. Just he had a look that, you know, had him. He was quite busy. Like he said, he worked with everybody. In, in all sorts of movies, not just action movies, he was all over the all the, over the gamut. Yeah, absolutely, and it's great to see him in stuff like The Fifth Element, where he's just playing the, uh, you know, the president of the galaxy, and you know, it's a role that doesn't require him to be tough or mean or angry. He's just there as like a very solemn individual, and it it's almost unusual to see him in that role. And I think that's kind of why it stands out to many people because you're so used to see seeing him as like this overly threatening presence and there he's just like almost a voice of reason and calm amongst you know chaos chad another interview that uh, ty did for born to be bad part two guy i know you are a huge fan of stephen lang yes uh 100 and stephen continues to make uh just great movies you know vfw came out a couple years ago the 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 sequel, the Don't Breathe series, that's kind of still moving through theaters and uh, working its way through. Hopefully, more sequels. Um, he's he's kind of always been a presence in action movies for the last thirty years plus. Um, whether he was a background character or as a leader, as a leading man, and uh, one of my favorite roles from him was uh, as Stonewall Jackson in the film Gods and Generals. I think for him, actually, that is also one of the favorite roles that he's ever played. He was very, um, very proud to have worked on that film. And you mentioned VFW. That is almost like a born to be bad best of, because you got Stephen Lang in there, you got William Sadler, you got Martin Cove, and you got David Patrick Kelly, all of whom I've interviewed for the born to be bad book. So it's kind of like a, a wonderful collaboration of, you know, nefarious talent. But you're right. He, he is one of those actors that, 
you can't quite nail him down. You know, one moment he's playing like uh, a cowardly Ike Clanton in something like Tombstone, where he's completely unrecognizable as Stephen Lang. And then, you know, next he's all muscular and oiled up in something like Avatar or the Don't Breathe films. Um, so, yeah, he was fascinating to talk to. Unfortunately, I, I literally only had 30 minutes with him and uh, his team were very quick to cut me off and to also stop me asking any probing questions about Avatar 2. Um, but, yeah, he, he was a delight. He, he, I was so lucky to be able to get him. Another guy you talked to, Robert Patrick, and I think most people think of Robert Patrick, they obviously obviously think of T2. But what I liked is that you kind of went back a little bit to his uh, movies he was making with Sirio Santiago in the Philippines, movies that I've just kind of recently been discovering over the past few years, writing uh, reviews for Bulletproof Action. So, yeah, I think that was a, a, you know, something I don't think I've ever heard him talk about before. No, the great thing about Robert Patrick is you get the impression he is very proud of his work as the T-1000 in Terminator 2. But also at the same time, he's probably a little tired of talking about it at this point. He said that, you know, 80% of the time people want to talk to him about Terminator 2. The other 20% it's the X-Files. And he seemed, I don't want to say grateful because that makes me sound like a bit of a prick. But I think he felt, you know, genuinely surprised that people wanted to talk to him about the films that he made with Roger Corman and Double Dragon. And that even when I was like, you know, between you and me, you had a bit of a fallow period in the late 90s where you were making these straight-to-video action films. But can we at least talk about them? And then his kind of, like, resurgence with, you know, from films like Copland and, you know, just talking about films that he's done since then. I think, basically, if you ever want to talk to Robert Patrick, just say that you don't want to talk about Terminator 2 and you're probably more likely <laughs> to get an interview with him. Because I kind of feel at this case, he's kind of said almost all he needs to say. And he's very proud of the role. I don't want to kind of, you know, give the impression that he wouldn't want to talk about Terminator 2. But I did kind of point out to him that there was this period after that where he had played the role in, you know, Terminator 2 Battle Across Time, uh, the Universal Round, uh, right? And then he had reprised the role in Wayne's World 2 and Last Action Hero. And I was like, did you get the impression that you were just constantly being asked, just play the T-1000? And he was like, yeah, no, that was a very real concern that people would just want me to do the T-1000 stick over and over again. And, you know, I'm glad I'm free of it and I can do other things. But I think at the same time today, the T-1000 is both almost a blessing and a curse to him. Probably more of a blessing. I I don't want to say it's a curse. That that makes it sound completely out of proportion. But, you know, I'm I'm... I just kind of, you know, whenever you see him do all these interviews for the Terminator, he, he's kind of saying the same things and you kind of get the impression he would love to talk about Double Dragon. Whether anyone else to want, wants to or not is another matter, but he did say Double Dragon was the film he's been paid. He was That was the film he was paid the most for. I'm a Double Dragon fan. I, I know a lot of people aren't, but I like the movie. It, it You know, again, it... I, it was geared for kids and maybe that's what people are missing out on. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, I, you, you really can't call it a curse because he's, if he never worked again, I would say it was a curse, but yeah, it, uh, you know, he's done a ton of things. He just popped up in, uh, the protege earlier this year. And, you know, I remember him even in the Sopranos, he had a, 
a spot on the Sopranos for a while. So yeah, and he was in the he's, uh, the, he's done some great things. He was in the Perry Mason reboot. I think he's just done the Peacemaker series with John Cena, wherever that was filmed. He is constantly working and he's constantly in stuff. Um, it, it, yeah, it, it's just I, I think there are one or two things that people just want to talk to him about, and. You know, I I can kind of get why that might be less interesting after 30 years. All right. Well, an interesting man you spoke to, Scott Adkins. And one of the things I think his YouTube show, The Art of Action, kind of showed about Scott Adkins is he is kind of like all of us on this show. He grew up as an action movie fanatic Mm -hmm. and uh, him getting a chance to work with a guy he looked up to in Jean-Claude Van Damme, I mean, and multiple times as well. I mean, that was, you know, that was some great stuff in the book. Yeah. I've met and interviewed Scott a bunch of times, actually. So he is the patron of a film festival here in the UK called the Fighting Spirit Film Festival. That's a martial arts film festival. And it was actually just last weekend in London, but he's obviously in Berlin doing uh, John Wick 4. And he's the patron for the uh, festival. So in previous years, he's debuted Accident Man and Triple Threat there. And he brings along some cast members and the directors like Jesse V. Johnson. But he is a fan for, you know, first and foremost. And, you know, I, I interviewed him at his house for the In Search of the Last Action Heroes documentary. And it, it, he's just, oh, his enthusiasm are just about talking about his favorite action films. It's you can see it in his Art of Action uh, YouTube series. He, he just loves talking about this stuff. Um, and yeah, he's so enthusiastic. And it's, it, it was great to kind of see him get It Man 4. Um, and he's, all, he's done a bunch of Chinese films like uh, Wolf Warrior. But I, I'm so glad he's kind of got John Wick 4. I hope that it kind of elevates him to kind of get more bigger roles. I was kind of hoping the same for Mark Cascos after John Wick 3, and that hasn't really been the case. He's kind of gone back to doing straight-to-video uh, schlock. But I'm hoping, I'm hoping that for Scott, John Wick 4 does propel him onto bigger and better things because I just feel that he is a treasure to those in the know and to those that are kind of outside the action movie fan community. He's a... Uh, He's not given his just desserts. Agreed. And I, I know, Chad, we've talked about that over the years. It's just He never has had that breakout role right. that would really define him and make him more mainstream. Right. And he, you know, we've said it a million times, and we're not the only ones saying it. Like you said, Ty, that the action community is absolutely loves this man. And he continues to make great film after great film. And his action sequences are uh, maybe the best in the world at the, at the moment. And it feels like he's just kind of one role away from landing that massive franchise or that, you know, nowadays it seems like he's, he's going to get that big Marvel movie or he's going to get that big Disney franchise. So like you say, hopefully John Wick four, this is certainly his biggest opportunity. Um, so uh, we'll, we'll see if it works out and then maybe him and Keanu can, uh, can work again together someday soon. Yeah, I mean, he was in Doctor Strange, but honestly, unless you knew it was him, you you would have been excused for missing him. You would have liked to have seen him maybe in something like Shang-Chi 2, or if they reboot Iron Fist, kind of have him in that. Um, 
I don't know. There's part of me's wondering, you know, if Hugo Weaving wasn't returning for the new Matrix film, they could have put him in there as a new agent. But I hear Daniel Bernhardt's returning anyway as an agent. So I don't know. I mean, there's so many potentials that he could be in. You, you just don't want to see him wasted in something like Fast and Furious 10 as a random henchman. You want him to be like <laughs> right. Jason Statham in those films. But, you know, Jason Statham's already got that role. So, you know... It, it, that's something that he can obviously slot into. I just, I'm not sure what it is. And the problem with Hollywood is that they're like, I think they just kind of see him as that stunt guy or that guy that does those smaller B movies. And they're not willing to put, you know, an A-list property on his shoulders. And, you know, I think the only way he can kind of get up into that is to kind of prove himself in films like John Wick 4. But, you know, he's been proving himself for 20 fucking years. So it doesn't make any sense to me. And John wick four is like a stacked movie. They're, everybody's in that movie. So hopefully he, he will have a chance to shine in that one. Last one we wanted to talk to you about was uh, an interesting woman who feels that she's from the moon. And I just wondered what you thought about with Bai Ling and did you fear your eyeballs at all? Bai Ling. Yes, I did question what i was listening to a lot she is very much a person that creates her own world and her own reality and you know god bless her god bless her for doing that she seems to have had a hard life growing up she's been in some crazy films um honestly i i don't know what her personal situation is but I think she's making her own film at the moment, but she, she was a lovely person to talk to. So enthusiastic, really passionate. Um, but yeah, like you said, it, it, it was a roller coaster. You just have to strap on and hold on tight when you're interviewing Bei Ling and just go with the ride. Yeah. I mean, obviously Chad, I think some people probably still have nightmares of her from the crow. <laughs> yeah, I think so. And, uh, her character, a, a very memorable one from that series, uh, in the first film, the crow, and she's tossing the the eyeballs into the little uh, burning the hot plate, if you will. Um, but yeah, she's certainly a character actor who has been around for a long time and, and doesn't really seem to age much. So I'm not sure if there's some sort of sorcery there or not. Uh, I I wouldn't care to speculate, but it wouldn't surprise me. All right. Well, again, those are just eight of the 20 villains that are interviewed in Born to be Bad Part 2 and a great book. If you haven't got that one, if you haven't got the original, they're both available and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But before we get into that, Ty, here's probably a tough question for you, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Do you have a favorite interview out of all the interviews you've done? I think one of the best interviews I did was in the first book and it was Sven Ole Thorsen, who... Uh, many of your listeners might know from Conan the Barbarian, who plays Thorgrim, um, James Earl Jones's main henchman with the hammer. He is in pretty much every Arnie film up until the mid nineties. He's basically a big Danish bodybuilder and he met Arnie through bodybuilding and they became good friends and he's just been in his films throughout. But then he's been in loads of other action films for you. He's in Hard Target. He's in The Hunt for Red October. He played um, uh, the the masked gladiator in Gladiator, the one with the tigers that Russell Crowe fights in the arena. He's been in everything. And as such, he has so many stories 
and they are completely unvarnished. He just tells stories of, you know, the cast and crew of Conan partying their way around Spain. And you imagine it was literally like, you know, just drinking and women chasing all around the country. And he talks of, you know, <laughs> semi-clashing with Russell Crowe on their, their sword fighting abilities and his relationship with John McTiernan, um, you know, nursing Arnie on the set of Predator because uh, Arnie got sick um, and then making sure he was back for his wedding. He's actually in Predator. He's the guy that Arnie goes knock, knock, and then blows him out of a window with a grenade launcher. So I would say Sven Ole Thorson because you might not know the name, but he is in all of your favorite films. And hopefully in my interview, you'll just be like, oh man, I love this guy. I love him. And now, Going forward, whenever I watch these films, I'm just going to keep an eye out for him. Yeah, Chad's favorite uh, from him is, I think, Abraxas. Isn't that right, Chad? You know, uh, no, my favorite <laughs> from him has got to be uh, from The Running Man. Yeah, he's where a security guard. There's this huge buildup as to these two, yeah, these two behemoths are going to fight it out at the end of the film. And then he basically just agrees with Arnold and walks away. And I just absolutely love it. Yeah, he, he's not taking Richard Dawson's crap anymore. Uh, <laughs> that, that was a good good scene. And um, another question for you, Ty, and, and this may force you. I know we talked prior to, to going on the air that you, you really weren't thinking about a part three anytime soon anyway. But is there somebody out there that you really, really wanted to interview for one of these two books that you just couldn't get to, that, you, that just kind of like your white whale, I, I, I suppose? Yes, uh, Clancy Brown. Um, so Clancy Brown, obviously, the Kurgan, uh, who is also in John Wick 4, by the way, uh, Shawshank Redemption, Starship Troopers. Uh, he was in, you know, that Daredevil Marvel series. Yeah, Clancy Brown was my white whale. And the problem is that man is always working. And as such, it was just impossible to kind of get him. If he's not, you know, literally physically acting and stuff he's constantly doing voice work you know he's doing stuff like spongebob squarepants he's lex luther and dc animated films he does computer games he's constantly working and i just couldn't get time to interview him over like four years he was my white whale i went through every contact i could find to get an interview with him and uh it i just couldn't do it it, it proved impossible so one day i will find and get Clancy Brown, but it is not this day. So there you go. Once he gets Clancy Brown, then he's a part three is going to have to happen. It's going to, it's going to have to. So I had a few suggestions in case a part three happens, if you'd like to hear them. I will. And then I will tell you whether I went for them or not and what happened. All right. Well, first on my list, and I know Chad, you probably have a few too. You might want to pitch out there. Uh, My first one though, Clarence Boddicker himself, Kurt Wood Smith. Yep. Uh, Clancy Brown problem, constantly working. He was up there and I just couldn't get him. I emailed his people on and off constantly for about four years. Couldn't get him. Trust me, I tried. All right. What about success is control? Control is success. Mr. Patrick Kilpatrick, who uh, unfortunately did not. uh, I think he was trying to become governor of California. I don't think that panned out for him. But uh, what a great villain he is. Another of those born to be bad for sure just by the looks of them yeah i think i might have tried to kind of get him but um i can't remember what the uh the reason was but no i mean i'm trying to think of like the one film to me that kind of stands out 
and it's maybe a razor and he's uh in last man standing and he's also like that big bulkish um pre-cop isn't he in minority report um but i think i, I don't yeah. know i don't i don't think there was like one villain role that i could kind of hang a hat on where i was like i've got to get patrick kilpatrick and i think that is why i didn't actively pursue it as much as i could have Chad, any any uh, names you want to throw out there? Yeah, when I think of uh, excellent villains in action movies, you know, I I always kind of return to um, what I watched as as a kid. And this man not only portrayed villains uh, in in films that I that I watched from the seventies, but also later in the eighties and early nineties. And that that's Bolo Young. <sighs> he was definitely on there, um, and I can tell you the reason why I didn't get Bolo Young. Uh, actually, two reasons. So the first was, uh, in these interviews, you kind of want someone that's going to tell you good stories. And I honestly didn't know how good Bolo's Mm -hmm. English is, whether it would kind of be a very stilted, um, awkward conversation. And then the other thing that kind of clinched it was I got word was that to do an email interview with Bolo would cost $2,500. To do a phone interview would have been five grand. And I'm like, well, if I'm not 100% sure on how this conversation was go would go, I'm definitely not forking out five grand. Not that I'm paying anyone for these interviews. And I'm definitely not going to do it for an email interview. <laughs> so that that was why I didn't get Bolo. But again, I would have loved to have got Bolo because like you, I grew up with him in everything from Enter the Dragon to all of those Jean-Claude Van Damme films and beyond. And my, my second, uh, and maybe one of my favorite villains of all time, uh, another man who's pretty much fought every action hero in the last 40 years, and that's James Liu. If you wanted to look like a badass in your film, you beat up James Liu. That is true. That is true. Um, I, I don't think I ever reached out to James Liu. I don't think I have an excuse. I honestly don't. I, I think... What I went for was, I think I tried to reach out to Yun Wah instead, and I couldn't get him. So, obviously, Yun Wah played the bad guy in so many Jackie Chan films, like Two Story 3, Super Cop, and Dragons Forever, um, and is a former member of the Jackie Chan stunt team, and recently just showed up in Chung, uh, Shang-Chi, Legend of the Ten Rings, which was awesome to see. Um, but, yes, I, I, I couldn't get him, and I think I might have put him above getting James Liu. And yeah, I, I don't think I actually even considered James Liu. And now I'm semi kicking myself for not doing that. Um, cause I think <laughs> well, there's always a part three. There's always a part three. I mean, there, there were so many kind of actors that I kind of wanted to talk to who have basically played the villain role and also trained um, a lot of action stars. So Benny the Jet Urquidez has played bad guys in Jackie Chan films and Western films, and then also trained people for um, films like um, Street Fighter and Roadhouse. And then Roger Yun, who I did interview for Born to Bad Part 2, was a bad guy, and he's been in like Showdown, this little Tokyo. He's Lo Fong in Shanghai Noon. But then he's also trained Matt Damon for the Bourne films and he trained Daniel Craig for the fight in Skyfall and then I think he gets uh he got Henry Cavill in shape for the Immortals and he does lots of uh fitness training these days with stars and I think he's also the fight coordinator and he's got a small role in June uh which is going to be awesome but yeah I think 
there were so many of those kind of martial arts, martial artists slash who've played villains who are also kind of fight coordinators and stunt coordinators that I think I went for those above someone like James Lou. So basically I have no excuse. All right. Well, while we have you here, since you are an action movie villain expert, uh, Chad had once had quite a hot take on our site and Chad, do you want to talk about it? It, It's your, it's your Skeletor theory. Yes. Uh, Yeah. This, this hot take always seems to kind of uh, pop back up whenever we, we talk about villains and uh, it kind of stems from my love of the, 80s film masters of the universe and how much i, I absolutely well. adore the the way that yeah the way that skeletor is presented and played it's just absolutely fantastic to me and i have said a couple of times over the course of my life that i think that skeletor is a better villain in that film than darth vader was in the original star wars tell me that i'm wrong i am not going to tell you you're wrong. And here's why. Here's why I'm going to semi-agree with you on this. Is that throughout the original Star Wars films, Darth Vader, in the first one, he is all presence. He is all, you know, towering persona and, you know, iconic black leather outfit. But in that first Star Wars film, he is the subordinate to Moff Tarkin. Moff Tarkin is actually bossing him around and controlling him and has him on a leash as well as the emperor. So he's more like a glorified henchman rather than a, you know, a dark lord of the Sith, which is, you know, what we're told and later and then we find out Anakin is space Jesus and the chosen one and then it all gets even more convoluted (laughs) and unnecessary. Whereas Frank Langella in, um, you know, Masters of the Universe, it might be, you know, an incredibly... uh, over-the-top performance, but he is he is committed to it. He is playing it like it's Shakespeare, and I appreciate that. So yes. I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I'm going to see why people might disagree with you, but I would not condemn you for that opinion, and I would probably ride into your defense. All right. Well, I think that's an endorsement, Chad, as far as, as you can go. Um, Accepted. Accepted very, very much, <laughs> very greatly. Thank you. Yes, no problem. Th- thank you, Ty, and thank you for for joining us on this show. Can you uh, let everybody listening, let it, let them know where they can pick up uh, born to be bad part two and part one for that matter. Sure. Both um, copies are uh, published by bear man and media in the U S so you can get it via their website. It's also available on all large tax dodging conglomerates, but you know what? Just order it through your local bookshop, support your local business and uh, get it that way. That's that's a good point because yeah, obviously uh, we know an easy place we can all find it. But yeah, if you if you got the local bookshop, check them out and see if they can't uh, hook you up with Born to Be Bad, Part Two, and of course the original Born to Be Bad. Uh, Ty, you want to give out your uh, social media if you if anybody else wants to pester you with suggestions for Part Three or just tell you how great your books are. Sure. Uh, for all uh, complaints and suggestions, uh, I'm on Twitter at Timon Singh. I'm also on Instagram at Time and Sing, but really you'll just see pictures of my dogs and whatever obscure martial arts films I've <laughs> picked up. Um, I'm also on Facebook at Born to Be Bad Book. So facebook.com forward slash Born to Be Bad Book. And before we go, I also want to just, I, we, we were talking again about this before we, we started recording, but Ben Turner's artwork on these books is fantastic. 
Um, I mean, I wish these were posters that I could buy. I'd hang them, hang them proudly uh, here in the bulletproof action offices. Um, so yeah, and you had mentioned that Ben was working on another uh, interesting project as well. Yeah, so Ben um, is a Bristol-born artist. Uh, actually, Bristol-born. He lives in Bristol. Um, and when I was doing the book, the publisher just wanted like a photo of like one of the actors for the cover. And I was like, that's, then it will just kind of look like, you know, it's the Ronnie Cox biography. And I was like, I don't want that. I kind of want something that, uh, you know, shows all these villains and people can look at the cover and go, oh, I know that guy. And I know that guy. And so I basically commissioned Ben to do the cover art and I showed it to the publisher and they were like, yeah, no, okay, that that's pretty good. Go ahead. Um, and I think from that, he's done a whole bunch more posters. And recently, one of his posters was in Underexposed, the 50 greatest movies never made, where uh, the, um, who's, who's the author? I just looked it up. The author basically uh, wrote essays about all these films that were never made and also commissioned um, artists to do the poster for them. And Ben did the poster for, I think it was Shadow Company, a John Carpenter film that was never made about uh, dead Vietnam soldiers that come back to America and then they come back to life as zombies and start rampaging through, you know, middle America. Um, But the author was Josh Hull and his book is Underexposed, the 50 Greatest Movies Never Made. So Ben's got a poster in that. And if you like the artwork, I'm actually going to be at the london film and tv comic-con in november and if you buy a copy of the book you can also get an a4 version of the poster for free there you go so if you're in london chris chad come on by the booth and i'll just give you a poster for free <laughs> yes yeah and chad cruz that shadow company sounds like a movie you would have been all about yeah you know what i think i've heard of that uh man i don't know if it was during um, maybe a commentary track from one of the John Carpenter films, but I remember him, I remember reading about the film and how it never got made. Um, darn it. Now I'll have to go back and search through the bulletproof action archives to figure out where I, where I read about it. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Ty, for joining us. You're, you're very welcome. This has been good fun. Again, I want to remind everybody about bulletproof action. Of course, bulletproofaction.com. We have something new each and every day on the site, check it out. And you can follow us on social media at Bulletproof Pod on Twitter and at Bulletproof Action on Instagram and Facebook. And, uh, you know, just as I always say, thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more of the Bulletproof Podcast. You're listening to the Geekscape Network. 